something beside me A light to the kerosene And the places aren't real anymore And the faces don't say anything In the silent light Of the Welcome to the Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good. Please support us by subscribing to the American Exception Podcast at Patreon. You will get access to over 150 episodes of the American Exception Podcast that you can't find anywhere else. This episode of Devil's Chess Club is available to everyone courtesy of Four Died Trying, the new documentary film series which explores the extraordinary lives and calamitous deaths of JFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and RFK. You can purchase the Four Died Trying Prologue episode on Apple TV and other streaming devices. The next chapter, Chapter 1, should be available any day now, I'm told. Now for some unreported news thanks to Four Died Trying. Dr. King calls U.S. greatest purveyor of violence. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. sent shockwaves through the U.S. establishment by publicly denouncing the U.S. war in Vietnam on April 4, 1967. His denunciation of the war was but one part of a broader critique of U.S. foreign and domestic policy, which King articulated to an audience at Riverside Church in New York City. King went so far as to call the USA the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. This comes after a period of disillusionment for America's leading civil rights figure. As he pointed out, there have been great victories in previous years, most notably the 1964 passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. King spoke of this evaporating optimism to the Riverside Church audience, saying, A few years ago there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. The war has crushed these hopes for the time being, as King explained. Then came the buildup in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war, and I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic, destructive, suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. After working tirelessly to challenge Jim Crow and white supremacy in the South, King despaired after touring cities in the North and finding that black America was barely better off outside of the Jim Crow South. King connected this despair to U.S. policy in Vietnam. My deeper level of awareness stems from my experience in the ghettos of the North. As I've walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, 
my own government. King spoke of the war as not only destructive and wasteful, but as being imperialist in character rather than being motivated by any sort of altruism. He told the crowd that the more sophisticated among U.S. soldiers surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. If the war continues, King argued, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. In order to begin the long and difficult process of extricating ourselves from this nightmarish conflict, King proposed five concrete steps the U.S. government should take. One, end all bombing in North and South Vietnam. Two, declare a unilateral ceasefire in the hope that such action will create the atmosphere for negotiation. Three, take immediate steps to prevent other battlegrounds in Southeast Asia by curtailing our military buildup in Thailand and our interference in Laos. Four, realistically accept the fact that the National Liberation Front has substantial support in South Vietnam and must thereby play a role in any meaningful negotiations and any future Vietnam government. Five, set a date that we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the 1954 Geneva Agreement. The speech represents a faithful choice for the iconic leader of the civil rights movement. King delivered this speech knowing full well that it could and would damage his standing with other civil rights leaders who, like King, have depended on support from the liberal establishment. Is King a prophet heralding a shift toward peace and justice in the U.S.? Or will the impact of this speech make it so that its very date, April 4, 1967, may take on historical significance? While it is impossible to answer these questions in the spring of 1967, the upcoming presidential election is shaping up to make 1968 a potentially cataclysmic year for the U.S. and the world. That story is from the Ford Eye Trying film series. They didn't just kill Martin Luther King, they killed the story. We want to correct that. Now Bryce and I are going to be talking about the Gaza Genocide and the reemergence of our favorite McJihad franchise, ISIS. And later, David Talbot joins us as well. Bryce Green, great to have you here. It's good to be here, Aaron. Now you're in Bloomington, which is a hotbed of radical uh, radicalism these days. Can you give us an update on uh, how things are going out there for you and your struggle to uh, win win people on the campus over to the, to the cause of justice in Palestine and such? Right. Well, as a group, honestly, the the Palestine Solidarity Committee is going strong. There's a lot of interest from a lot of different corners on campus. Uh, but uh, due to recent events, we're getting even more interest and the faculty is getting more involved and alumni are getting more involved. Uh, these recent events include the suspension of uh, our faculty advisor, uh, a professor named Al Bukato Sino. Uh, he was suspended because uh, he filled out a, a room form wrong for an event on campus. Uh, and then that event on campus hosted a controversial speaker. And uh, the university used that as a jumping off point to launch an investigation and then summarily suspend him. So naturally, even faculty who aren't necessarily pro-Palestinian are like, wait, this one this one uh, vice provost can just suspend people uh, with the flick of her pen? Uh, they're outraged about that. Uh, and on top of that, the university just revoked the invitation to a Palestinian artist named uh, Samia Halabi 
who was set to debut a bunch of art at the uh, whatever IU Art Museum. And uh, uh, but two months before it was supposed to debut, she gets a call from the director saying that there's concern about some social media posts that she's made in support of Palestine. Concerns. And uh, got some concerns, man. Got some concerns. And then they were like, well, we are not certain that we're able to ensure the integrity of this display for the duration of the exhibit. So therefore, we have to cancel. Obviously, you know, probably nonsense. But, you know, both of these issues came to a head yesterday uh, at a faculty meeting or a, a faculty council meeting where they just laid into the provost for a little bit. But, you know, uh, they they defended themselves. They said that there's a lot of security concerns that we'll never know about and that he can't tell us about. But he's been in touch with various stakeholders, including the FBI, yada, 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 to ensure that IU is a safe campus. Uh, so, I mean, by that logic, it just seems like you can't invite anyone to speak critically of Israel and Israel's ongoing genocide in Gaza Uh it, it, you could always say it's a security risk that like just gives them the ability to stop anything and act as kind of a anti first amendment Gestapo. Exactly. And and they said that, uh, Oh, in every case they weigh the, uh, the potential harm to our credibility against the potential harm of well, a security that's breach. Silly. There's <laughs> no, they can't have their credibility damaged because they have no credibility. These are totally, yeah. uh, total hypocrites who believe in, don't really seem to believe in, they're liberals who don't even believe in liberalism when it comes down to it. They're worshipers of power. Yeah. And the, uh, the provost was telling us how, uh, well, we need to assume that everyone is acting in good faith. And I was like, is there really a good reason to assume that? I don't think so. Uh, but uh, but that, that's where we stand. <laughs> in that fact, person you know, has to realize that everybody listening already assumes that that person themselves is not acting in good faith. Yeah. So this is, yeah. That just adds another, another layer of silliness to this. It was kind of like he was laughing at us, honestly. But yeah, but some of the you know Palestinians uh, who are in the group, like actual Palestinians, uh, they were talking about how if Palestinian existence is controversial inherently, then there will always be some sort of security risk from even discussing those issues. Therefore, it can always be used as a pretext for repression, suppression, or. Uh, or other otherwise. I mean, it's yeah, pretty it's obvious. Quite, o- what quite obvious to, to anyone looking at that situation that that follows. Yeah. If anyone listening is interested in this, they can check out. Uh, there's a good article in the Nation uh, by Jeffrey Isaacs, who has been uh, actually pretty good, pretty good on our side about this. Uh, he's one a brilliant dude, friends. man. He he's a really smart guy. He's his sort of li- his little foray into neoconservatism in the Iraq War era was pretty shitty but um he's he was my favorite professor he's a very smart guy well, I, i'm gonna ask him to explain that we, we're set to meet here soon <laughs> yeah i need to grill him about that one day too. tell him i'm waiting in the wings to <laughs> tell him i appreciate his recent contributions but that he's got some explaining to do he'd probably yeah. get a laugh at that yeah. uh, he was he was really funny though and very smart as a professor his class wasn't boring when he talked in fact he was like such a good lecturer that Whenever my classmates would start, you know, saying something that I didn't find especially, you know, deep or interesting, I would be like, shut, shut up and just let him get back to explaining some shit, yeah. which is I think that's a, a sign that he's a he's a smart guy. Uh, but so that's cool that he's he's out there and supporting people. Do you think that they're going to be able to is there any way to move them on this or are you guys going to just keep like move on to the like protests, protest this, pick uh, 
try to stir up as much publicity for it and then try to schedule the next thing and see what they do? Yeah, well, we don't we're we're not necessarily sure that they're going to move on it. Uh, I mean, they seem to the the whole issue is that they use a different uh, like they went around the existing procedures as understood by most of the the faculty in order to do this unilaterally without any faculty review, without any uh, input from uh, like his department. Uh, but they doubled down and said that this is actually the right thing. This is actually what the policy says. This is good. This, yeah, and this is good. <laughs> and we're keeping we're keeping the students safe, no matter what. And I hope yeah. that you can share in our shared mission. It, uh, weirdly enough, during that meeting, he kept using a phrase: "We have to keep what makes us us." And I was like, "What? Isn't that like a Brexit slogan? Like, I think isn't that, that like means? I think that that's just code for." we're going to continue to be assholes. Yeah. I, that's what, uh, yeah, that's what I read it as. And you can hear like some, some snickers in the room, but, uh, <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I that's mean, I bet IU. Groans and eye rolls and, you know, all sorts oh, yeah. of dissatisfaction. Well, we had a bunch of students show up and, uh, they couldn't help themselves from like overtly laughing at some points. And I was like, guys, guys, no, we gotta be serious. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> if they're not going to be serious, then they're making it really hard for us to, I mean, the emperor, really has no clothes at this point and the rest of the world like they they see this and it, it, it's just i think that they have lost the people running shit have just lost the plot i think because the rest they can control their own little fiefdoms through dictates you know but the rest of the world is is moving on and so this is i i, I don't understand where they think that this is going unless some crazy shit is going to happen soon we're going to be like oh well i guess that's what they were planning <laughs> Yeah, some some UFO event is coming soon. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, a war, a, some pretext for a war with Iran. It's hard to say. But um, yeah. let's talk about a few things that are in the news and that are very important uh, today uh, around this time because we want to get this stuff out as quick as we can. And um, I want to bring up this. This is from The Intercept. And the article is about groups backing a genocide lawsuit against Biden in the U.S. courts. We already know that there's the law, there's the case going on at the International Court of Justice about the, you know, South Africa has brought that against Israel for genocide in Gaza, which is to basically say, is there enough probable cause? It's like an indictment, basically, before they would have a more serious trial, but they could issue an injunction after that. So that's notable. Um, I have, let me try to pull this up here. Here, this guy summarizes it uh, at The Intercept. And I don't particularly like The Intercept, but I, I do appreciate it at least that they are taking a better position on this. I think that they're kind of like Human Rights Watch where they they really are a part of the empire in, in some ways, but they're like the liberal part and they can sort of score points by uh, taking a better stand on this than the mainstream. So they can be like, we're not, you know, we're the, we're the rat, we're the outs, we're the critics of empire, even though like their owner is an intelligence asset and an oligarch. But he writes, dozens of legal and civil society organizations from around the world have thrown their weight behind a U.S. lawsuit accusing President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin for failing to prevent an unfolding genocide in Gaza. In late December, 77 groups representing tens of thousands of lawyers, civil society leaders, and activists from six continents filed an amicus brief in a lawsuit that Palestinian human rights organizations, residents of Gaza, and U.S. citizens with family members impacted by Israel's ongoing assault brought against the Biden administration. So this is, um, there's some legal action here. Have you been following this particular, this other case as well? I mean, I, I'd heard rumors that, it, that or it had been reported that South Africa was trying to add the U.S. as a co-defendant 
or a co not a co-defendant but a somehow of being a co-conspirator or aiding and abetting this genocide but i don't i haven't looked into the details of all of that what what do you know about this and what can you say about it yeah i've been following that i've i heard the same uh the same reports about south africa trying to do uh, to bring the us into this uh, bring i believe it was separate charges against yeah. the us for their role in this uh that i believe that was confirmed uh, as at least something that they're exploring or trying to do yeah. um but this uh this is a uh, this is a different thing and i'm not sure which uh, which organizations were qualified to actually sign on to this uh, amicus brief uh, but it seems to be a, another one of these tracks where they're trying to use the international legal system to you know bring some sort of consequences for the united states i mean you can only go to the UN or these international institutions if you have a uh, you know, sort of a public relations strategy in mind, because obviously the Security Council is controlled by the United States so long as they have a veto power. Uh, but these courts have their legitimacy at, at stake. And if they're not going to you know, act on such obvious cases like this, well, then, you know, they're they're imperiling their entire future. Uh, as legal institutions. And so this lawsuit just seems to be one more way to uh, force that crisis upon these institutions. And it'll be interesting to see to see how it goes. Uh, yeah, this will be I one agree. of the things to follow. I agree. Um, yeah, the, so the, this one, this article was written before they began hearing complaints at The Hague. So uh, there's that 84 page complaint. Uh, that pertains to the you know Israeli charges of genocide, charges of Israeli genocide at, at against uh, the Palestinians in Gaza. Um, so uh, we'll come back to this story if there's something more to report. And I'm very curious. I would imagine that they will have a that they will have an in indictment or whatever you want to call it from the 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 case at the Hague. And this lawsuit, I would imagine, will get dismissed for lack of standing in some way or another. They tend to smack these things down. Uh, when it comes to international law in the United States, yeah, but um, I, say, I can imagine a U.S. court, uh, you know, uh, inviting a challenge to the U.S. government in an international court. I mean, but, it's yeah, they uh, they treat they don't repeatedly that we've seen that there's no way to really challenge the national security state in the courts. Uh, they can basically do whatever they want. The empire does what it wants, and uh, it's it, since Israel is you know seems to be intertwined with the pinnacle of the U.S empire it um i don't expect anything to come from it now another very interesting thing for anybody who's followed my work and uh you know the articles with that, that peter duscott and ben howard and i did on 9 11 and masood and uh related areas and the things i've said about you know mcjihad and so on i mean you can't i i couldn't have made this stuff up it uh is really wild the cradle just came out with an article uh, on the 16th Reviving ISIS, a U.S. weapon against the resistance axis. So this is cool because uh, the cradle is not Alex Jones or David Icke or Illuminati.com. They have very solid journalists. This guy is the cradle's Iraq correspondent, which I assume means he's in Iraq and would just rather not have his name known because, you know, uh, Mossad or the U.S. might kill him. Um, but here, is it a coincidence that the world's foremost terror organization is being revived just as the U.S. struggles under a multi-front assault on its hegemony in West Asia, more curiously, both ISIS and Washington's targets are exactly the same. This is not a long article. People should read it, but I'm going to draw from certain passages in it because it's really uh, an astounding article. It's like, I, I wish I would have had the time to put something like this together myself, but this guy actually has sources that I couldn't have had anyway. So this is really uh, a great piece from 
the cradles the rat correspondent uh whoever you are out there we salute you and uh Charmaine narwani and the other people at the cradle i also give them props for publishing this but uh this part, Iraqi, Iraqi security sources are warning of an ISIS revival in the country, coincides all too neatly with the spike in Iraqi resistance operations against the U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria and the widening instability caused by what's going on in Gaza. Um, six years after they declared victory over ISIS, Iraqi intelligence reports indicate that thousands of ISIS fighters are emerging unscathed under the protection of U.S. forces in two regions of western Iraq. Okay, this is, this is a quote. Hundreds of ISIS fighters fled to Turkey and Syria at the end of 2017 after the appointment of Abdullah Kardash as the leader of ISIS in 2019. Following the death of Abba of Baghdadi, the new caliph began to restructure the organization and ordered his followers to return to Iraq. They exploit the long border with Syria, the security disturbances, and the diversity of forces on both sides of the border to infiltrate the Iraqi territory again. Now, the significance of this is... ISIS appears right when the U.S. is forced to withdraw from Iraq, right? Or uh, uh, shortly after this, you have ISIS come in, and then there's another pretext for the U.S. to be conducting military operations in Iraq. Iraq wants the U.S. out of the country. The U.S. builds military bases, and then the pretext for them becomes ISIS, ISIS, right? Oh, these horrible Islamic people, and they took territory. They had all this strange funding and everything. It's very mysterious uh, around this time. Here's another one. Iraqi Security Service. Uh insisting on anonymity says the u.s plays a vital role in enabling border violations several incidents that confirm the american assistance in securing the crossing route for isis members mainly by shelling iraqi units on the border especially the popular mobilization units to create gaps that allow isis fighters to cross the border so they have their own like malicious militias that are that are affiliated to i believe different state different like subnational governments or entities or regions I mean, they have done a lot to try to deal with the security situation in Iraq, which I, which the U.S. is likely inflamed to keep chaos so they can stay there. And ISIS is the most crazy example of it. Okay, early U.S.-ISIS connection, quite clearly, the group's founding uh, and their leaders being among inmates at Camp Buka in southern Iraq, internment camp run by U.S. military. This is al-Baghdadi and a bunch of the other people who are the top leaders. They were known for abusing detainees. They bring together all these extremist elements, put them together for six years, and then they let the now well-networked extremists go free. For Okay, that was three years, 2003 to 2009, or those six years. Um, and the religious officials of ISIS even say they use their time at the prison to obtain vows from prisoners to join the terrorist group after their release. Well, I'll tell you my own run-in with this, which is a, that a guy that I worked with who formerly... I used to work with, he was a history teacher, nice guy, but vaguely a centrist person politically, as in like in between Democrats and Republicans. And he told me he, he worked at the King's College in Jordan and the King of, it was the King's College for the King of Jordan. And he would visit that college and talk to people. And around 2009 or 2010, he told them, he was talking to them and was saying to these history teachers and was saying, oh yeah, there's going to be this uh, crazy bunch of, of, Islamists, and they're going to come out of nowhere, and they're going to set up their own state, and it's going to be crazy, uh, right? And he was telling them this before the Arab Spring, before, um, before obviously before ISIS, uh, and this, uh, I mean, this, this is crazy because it's exactly what happened. The guy that told me this is not someone of my bent politically. Like I'm much more radical than him, much more suspicious. He's the he would tell me this and not even really want to speculate on what it means but for me i'm like oh well it's just mcjihad of course 
So I've all, and I've I've told this story on the podcast before. It's it's really yeah. I think about me. it a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. And I this dude has no reason to lie. He also said that the 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 king had his handlers were kind of like, oh, we got to like hurry up and shuffle him out of here because he had a habit of just like saying too much. So, you know, this is just more confirmation of this. But by now, if you're not a dope, you know that this is an an, an Israeli U.S. thing. It's like very to allow the same things that the Arab Spring and the global war on terror, you know, the 9-11 wars were supposed to accomplish. They also, this article also reports U.S. intelligence protected the organization indirectly, allowing them to move between cities. Um, and they also re re refused to allow death sentences to be implemented against ISIS members, established ha safe havens. It's really something what they've been able to do. Now here, 4th on January, ISIS claims responsibility for those big bombs that were there for the Soleimani funeral procession that killed 90 people. That's on the 4th of January. So, you know, not that long ago. And even before that in October, uh, ISIS used a drone attack. Wow, they've got some really sophisticated uh, hardware um, on a, in Homs, a Syrian city that killed 100 people. Um, and that these attacks indicate fresh blood, money and weapons are being pumped into the ISIS organization's arteries again. Hard to argue with that. High ranking officer of those uh, Iraqi militias said U.S. forces are preventing Iraqi forces from approaching Huron Valley by attacking any of them that come near. This happened when American aircraft targeted units of the PMU that were attacking ISIS. So they can't actually even attack ISIS because they're in areas that the U.S. protects, and sometimes the U.S. even attacks them. Uh, citing intelligence reports confirming presence of dozens of ISIS members in the valley where they receive training and equipment from U.S. forces. I mean, it, this seems quite straightforward. Uh, it should be noted that U.S. forces are deployed under the umbrella of the Coalition to Combat ISIS. Okay, last week, four years after Iraqi parliament first wanted to expel them, the prime minister finally weighed in on the destabilizing impact of the U.S. and demanded a quick and orderly exit. So not only has the parliament uh, asked the U.S. to leave, but the prime minister has as well. Uh, Washington countered saying it has no plans to withdraw. Um, it, it announced on the 14th that it'll be sending an additional 1,500 to Iraq and Syria illegally without the consent of either nation. You know, to fight ISIS. Now, even though both of those both of those countries, their heads of state hate ISIS, U.S. is basically protecting him. Uh, one irony here is that ISIS appears to regain momentum each and every time Baghdad raises the issue of military withdrawal from Iraq. Yes, funny how that happens. <laughs> now, this part here is the closer, and this is the last part I want to put from the article. The article is so good; it's really uh, it's really it's something everyone should read. Um, it can also no longer be seen as a coincidence that the terror group is now reassembling its forces to target Washington and Tel Aviv's most capable regional foes, the Axis of Resistance. That means Hezbollah, Iran, Syria, and now Iraqi militias too. Just when the U.S. and Israel are struggling to handle a region-wide multi-front assault from the Axis of Resistance. The extraordinary synergies between Americans and the world's foremost terror group can no longer be ignored. Their targets are one and the same, and ISIS is only now entering the fray just as Washington begins to lose its hold on West Asia. I mean, this is the most obvious thing. Bryce, what's your what's your take on, on ISIS? Good, bad? You want to join them? U.S. sock puppet? Freedom fighters? What do you think? Uh, well, I'm, I'm in contact with the guy who said that he's, uh, you know, trying to get me to join ISIS. Uh, he said that if I just show up at the corner over there he can hook me up with some c4 some machetes some ak's that's nice I i'll see how it goes you know you know yeah <laughs> they have they're, they have an attractive <laughs> package that they offer recruits i mean 
Yeah. Was, well, maybe really, I might be what too is this about? <laughs> But yeah, no, this, this ISIS case is interesting. And, you know, we've been talking about it for a while and I've been following it kind of closely. I have a Google alert for, for ISIS and ISIS K. Um, but I, I mean, it, it's fascinating to watch the, the, the sort of pool ball, like, uh, effect of ISIS. Like when the U.S. wants something done, when the U.S. has a policy imperative and it seems that all else fails, oh, all of a sudden ISIS is here to, uh, well, I mean, look at, if you look at the case now, the attack on Iran, just when the U.S. is ramping up their attack or their their rhetoric against Iran, right when Israel is saying that uh, they're seeking a wider war, uh, right when uh, it looks like a the you know the, the axis of resistance is gearing up for a big uh, something big, and then ISIS comes in and is able to enact U.S. policy with complete plausible deniability. Well, I mean it's only plausible no, to some people. Plausible <laughs> is really in the eye of the beholder, I, I think. Uh, but it's just it's just astounding that you have one of the most radical, uh, like uh, violent Islam Islamist sects in the world, and they have absolutely nothing to say about Israel. Uh, and they actually enhance the U.S. and Israel's position in the region. Like and if you're if get you're protection, a, get protection from them in ways that people are talking about openly now. Yeah. Well, uh, at least uh, through if, at least anonymously, but at least they're putting it out there. Yeah. And and the, the positions they take are almost identical to the West. I mean, anti-Iran, anti-Hezbollah, anti-Hamas, uh, you know, they're they're their biggest funders were Turkey and Saudi Arabia directly, two of the U.S.'s biggest allies. They're also anti-China. In fact, ISIS-K in uh, Afghanistan, they made it pretty clear that their uh, that their goal is to stop Chinese development in Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, that who who else has a goal like that? Where have you heard that before? So, so specific. I mean, yeah. my gosh, it's that's so very... But like they're targeting. Uh, they're, they're very wonky with their geopolitical analysis. <laughs> yeah, they're literally t targeting like business developments in Afghanistan. They're, they're they in their magazine. I believe they claimed it as a victory that uh, that Chinese businessmen are worried about terrorism in Afghanistan. That's it's ridiculous. I mean, and they're also, of course, using a. Uh, they are joined up with the the Turkic Turkestan Islamic Party or the East Turkestan Islamic Party. There's 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 two groups with like similar East names. East Turkestan but... is the uh, is the Xinjiang. Yes, and that's Xinjiang. That's where the Uyghurs are. Um, yeah. But uh, interestingly enough, the U.S. Uh, under Pompeo, right before Trump left office, they took off the East Turkestan Islamic movement off of the terrorist watch list, and then uh, they don't have to do that. They could still keep supporting these jihadis and and put them on the list at the same time. That's what they normally do. Why even bother? I don't know. Maybe this was just a bureaucratic, uh, you know, uh, an e, an e, e. What am I trying to say? Like trying to make it easier to do bureaucracy. Yeah. Uh, again, I mean, the, the maybe, paper it, maybe it does make like, it easier so. to get them aid or something. You know. Well, exactly. Well, that's the thing. The the UN um, uh, a few years ago, right after this Pompeo move, uh, they reported that the the ETIM and ISIS K were sharing personnel, sharing weapons, sharing intel. So you have this group that was just overtly protected by the U.S. by taking them off the watch list, uh, instantly integrated into ISIS. I mean, it, it, the the facts are right there. Their geopolitical positions should tell you enough. And then you have all of these people. 
like these Iraqi officials talking to the Kratos Iraqi correspondent, uh, but also, I mean, even Hamid Karzai, who was the U.S. Oh, yeah, puppet yeah. in Afghanistan for years and years and years, he said, well, very, he said that, yeah, of course the U.S. is supporting ISIS. They're, they're, you know, they're a militia that helps the U.S. enact its foreign policy with plausible deniability. And yeah. it's, and also Iraq, uh, Iranian intelligence has suggested this. Uh, Nasrallah in, in Lebanon, Hezbollah has suggested this. The Russians, of course, they've they've been putting out information like this. The Syrian government, uh, their state-backed media, has been issuing reports about U.S. Uh, helicopters protecting uh, or moving uh, ISIS figures. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to this, to the point where if you disagree that the U.S. is a proxy or that ISIS is a proxy of the U.S., at least to some extent, then you have a high bar to clear. You have a high evidentiary bar to clear. You need to make your case. Like, it's not... I mean, it's, it's one of those where, like, unless you see a notarized... Because even documents have come out saying that, like, yeah, we understand that this is going to fuel the growth of Salafi terror networks, but we're kind of cool with that. I mean, there, is docu there are documents that go that far. And the, Well, there's Biden even saying it. <laughs> he was yeah. saying that, uh, uh, well, well, I know it was John Kerry who said that, well, we let ISIS grow. Yeah, that's we what I'm talking about. And yeah. uh, the reason that the Russians got involved in Syria is because they didn't want a Daesh government and Daesh is ISIS. Uh, and that was what the U.S. was pushing for, admitted to by John Kerry. Uh, I, how much more proof do you need? I mean, that's just it. They have. So this is where the U.S. and Israel have really run into rea a reality, and they it's going. It's basically washing away what they've spent decades to, trying to do. Their evil plans, going back to like the clean break, the PNAC thing. This is all part of that quest. And it's running into reality and uh, uh, this harsh material realities that make it untenable, I believe. Like, I don't even think that by using these jihadis that they can really fundamentally reverse things. And they, in fact, they can't because that's the why they have no recourse but to just enter in in the most crude, blunt and overt way in Syria and just take over a big swath of Syria and make it ISIS land and, and say that they're no fighting <laughs> ISIS. It's the most absurd thing. And no person who's like looks at this seriously and is, doesn't have like ideological blinders on is is gonna like swallow this story as it's being presented to us. No, absolutely right. But I think the 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 question is, uh, like you say, like how will this turn out? How will this work? Because as I said earlier, one of the uh, ISIS's top funders, uh, like backers, was the Saudi government. But the Saudis, they seem like they're taking a different. Turn, a different That's tone what I'm saying. The Turks conflict. and the Saudis have to know some shit that could be very explosive. Yeah. And, and, you know, even if there are divisions within the Saudi establishment, as there is with any, you know, empire or imperial proxy or any state. Uh, yeah, because the, the Khashoggi whole... guy got chopped off. That shows that there's divisions, not just yeah. him being divided up into small parts, but like real serious divisions. Yeah. <laughs> but, but on the whole, the government of Saudi Arabia seems to be preparing for this, you know, multipolar push. The, the peace deal with Iran, I mean, that's uh, that's major. If yeah. uh, there's a sect of the Saudi establishment that no longer wants a perpetual war with Iran, Why well, I mean, how is that going to affect the relationship with these Salafi proxies that the Saudis use in their geopolitics? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, who knows? Uh, maybe, uh, you know, there's a few rogue Saudis who st still, uh, you know, want to support the U.S. line on these sorts of things. and But, I mean... I don't know if that's going to persist. And the same thing with Turkey. 
I mean, I don't know much about Turkish politics, but if there is a sect in there that's still devoted to upholding this, you know, U.S. unipolar world order by, you know, destabilizing the Middle East to make it easier for the U.S. and Israel to uh, enact their geopolitical agenda, I don't know how much that's going to last given the, well, the, the fact that Turkey, you know, they've always had one foot in each camp, so to speak. They've been able to be in NATO while getting Russian weaponry. Uh, well, if the sect that's more closer to the East, if they start saying that, well, we don't want to fund these proxies anymore, we're going to tighten up our borders so that, uh, you know, uh, all these RPGs and AKs can't get to ISIS anymore. Well, then, I mean, ISIS can't persist anymore. I mean, I think more importantly, they could actually reveal the connections between their own intelligence services and ISIS earlier on, you know? Yeah. They, uh, they if could they wanted that. to. The problem is, how do they do that without losing some credibility and damaging themselves? But I, I think that what's pretty clear is that the balance of power is changing. And is, uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia are somewhat inscrutable in that they still maintain, uh, maintain good relations with the U.S. They still allow the, U, the U.S. to attempt to woo them to side. And they sort of stay on side to a degree. Like even as they were negotiating that, you know, rapprochement with Iran, they were talking about normalizing relations with Israel. I'm referring to Saudi Arabia. They're still so talking they, about it. Yeah, right. And I, and I, I, you have to wonder, it's an open question as to how much of this is them really thinking that they must be, you know, in between these two camps in the long run, or are they just trying to sort of placate the U.S.? In the me as events unfold, but eventually they're going to break one way or the other. I, I tend to think that it's that because the way that I look at it, China and, 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 and Russia and the BRICS want are basically saying, "Hey Arabs, hey Persians, you could run this your own areas, your regions. You don't have to. You could be the Middle East. The people of the Middle East could be running the Middle East. You don't just have to be the U.S. and Israel's little uh, hype men. You know." Like you don't have to be their little lackeys in the region. And I, that would be, that would be much better for the Saudi, you know, the Arabs and the uh, Persians, you know, the Iranians. Uh, and it would be better for China and Russia to kick the U S out of there. It would be better for everybody except for hardline Zionists and uh, American imperialists and maybe Europe if, if they're really, but I think Europe is just kind of like whatever the U S says we have to follow and they're our masters. Yeah. They don't seem to be thinking too hard about like their future. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the Nord Stream business seemed to solidify that. The fact that they let the U.S. or whomever get away with blowing up the Nord Stream, di directly damaging their uh, their liquid natural gas exports. I mean, in fact, this Red Sea business it has another connection to that. Uh, yeah. To that, because uh, they, I believe, it was Qatar or is it the UAE that supplies a whole bunch of liquid natural gas? Through that, uh, Qatar, Qatar has a lot of uh, liquid natural gas. Yeah, well, they they uh, ship it through the um, through the Suez. Well, if you can't get through the Suez, well, then that raises the price of liquid natural gas in Europe even more. So Europe, well, the U.S. has its fracked stuff though, so they could actually benefit. Some people could benefit in the U.S. from that. Well, the U.S. That whole, this whole idea of Europe. doing this, <laughs> yeah, this is where it's so it doesn't seem tenable because the U.S. the U.S. liquid natural gas. Is more expensive to extract and that's even with the and magic of the over. dollar which allow has been uh, has allowed them to you know uh, uh, pursue many untenable things just through the magic of money that they don't really have to conform to the same laws of supply and demand and scarcity of, as other countries because we control the currency um so i i think that 
this is some this is very short-sighted i don't even thinking that you're going to turn that the u.s is going to somehow be saudi arabia of natural gas and that you're just going to keep european industry going this way and german industry going this way it, it seems like lunacy to me it doesn't seem at all feasible well it seems like they kind of want to destroy european industry destroy germany i mean it's what michael hudson wrote as soon as the ukraine war broke out uh, the yeah. u.s defeats germany for a third time and they get to, uh, you know, set the set the rules for how Germany is going to develop uh, without the industry. I mean, you're seeing it in the German press and the American financial press all the time. They're talking about deindustrialization of Germany because the high price of energy means you can't build anything, you can't produce anything. Yeah, that's that's going to persist. Yeah, I don't. Th I feel that they have not thought this through, and I feel that they're going to find themselves in a more precarious and desperate situation, and then they're going to start entertaining if they're not already which i'm sure they are they're going to start entertaining grimmer and and grimmer decisions and i don't know what that means for us but i everything about them so far suggests that they do not recalibrate to accept defeat you know that they that actually not being the alpha dog of the world is not something that they have factored in they yeah don't, i don't you don't hear people talk in high places saying we must bow to reality and, and realize that we have to get along with the world and need some sort of system based on international law and that we need to be a part of a world community dedicated to like solving global problems realistically there's no nobody's <laughs> saying that we've got three candidates and they're all kennedy is at least talking about reforming the u.s empire rhetorically but the others are basically uh, they don't, they're not really calling for this kind of a reckoning. And Kennedy is, of course, they're all pro, so pro Zionist that they're not really getting at the heart of what is driving the doomsday machine right now, uh, yeah. towards you know, disaster. So, uh, I, what, well, I, I, it's, we're just going to have to see how things play out. I hope that they're in a position where it's going to be clear that they don't have any good options and so they must chill with all yeah. this ultra violence. Ideally. I mean, I always say like the only and for you at home, if you're feeling depressed by all this overwhelmed uh, again, the only way that this ends in any sort of nice fashion is if the U.S. decides to act normally. And the only way they're going to do that is if someone well, or something forces them to. And that that pressure has to come from inside the U.S. Otherwise, if, it, if it's external pressure, well, then it'll just implode. So there's two there's two ways though they can interact with each other. The fact that the US doesn't have any good options that aren't insane because external pressure has finally gotten to the point that it limits their ability to act and then people within the system saying, "Hey, this is the actual situation. Let's not be insane." Exactly. Let's actually try to act like moral human beings who have feel some responsibility to humanity and the continued existence of civilization. And so the best way to do that Build an organization, organize people, get out there, get into get into the streets, not just the streets, but the meetings afterwards. Those are important. Otherwise, who are they going to listen to? There is yeah, no yeah. left in America. You got to build it. You got to start somewhere. Even if yeah. you don't like DSA, find another organization or build DSA, break DSA, do something. But uh, doing nothing is not an option. So you know, somehow, um, somehow, whatever we can do with civil society uh, is going to be is important even if we are rather weak in the united states bryce i know that you have other engagements today so i'm going to uh let you 
let you depart. But thank you very much for joining us again. Absolutely. And thank you, Aaron. David Talbot, thank you for joining us again. So David Talbot, we are um, in the midst of this horrible conflict and there's a genocide trial going on. Um, and uh, the U.S. is getting the U.S. side is getting pulverized in Ukraine. The, the, the empire is looking really bad. And uh, I've been thinking about your book, The Devil's Chessboard. And you write about some of the goings on between the American establishment, deep state, the, the sort of Rockefeller overworld, the, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, and its run-ins with Zionism. And there's a strange story you tell about the John Loftus. I don't know how well you remember this because it's been a while. And I know myself, like some of the things I write that I've written about are dense. And then if you haven't looked at it in a while, it's kind of tricky. But how did the there was an angle of the of the zionism and richard nixon and the dulles brothers that allowed gave him some leverage on the dulles over the dulles brothers in some way uh what do you recall about about the way that played out because that's a weird thing at the end of world war ii and then in the you know it, it helps to boost nixon really well yeah you're right aaron i did go into history in my book um be the uh as the world war ii morphed into the uh cold war and i believe uh as you know from reading the book that the nazi ideology which was basically an exterminationist ideology vis-a-vis uh, -vis the soviet union they thought the soviets were subhuman the russian people and they killed millions of them as you know they laid waste uh, to that country in their invasion, Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union. JFK spoke very eloquently about that invasion and the huge cost, a uh, human cost, of uh, Soviet cost in his peace speech in 1963. So I believe that Nazi ideology, exterminationist view of the Soviet Union, essentially became the Cold War ideology. And Alan Dulles, who was the leading spy master, subject of my book, but also the leading spy master in the U.S. during the Cold War, had a devil's pact, a devil's uh, union with Reinhard Galen, who was Hitler's top spy master on the bloody Eastern Front. And because of uh, uh, patrons like Dulles, Galen, weirdly, he should have hung at Nuremberg, instead of hanging at Nuremberg, uh, he rose to become the head of West German intelligence and a major power player in NATO and US intelligence as well. He and Dulles, who's head of the CIA, formed this unholy pact. Uh, and I think there, that Galen's view of the Soviet Union, which is, by the way, uh, an exaggerated militaristic view of the Soviet Union. He kept threatening, saying that Soviets were going about to invade U the Western Europe. That's not true, of course. Uh, it was it, it would have been suicidal for them to come across uh, Western Europe, the Red Army. Um, he didn't. He, Stalin lacked the nuclear firepower of, uh, of of the U.S. for one thing. 
So um, Galen exaggerated the Soviet strength, exaggerated the threat from the Soviet Union, wanted a confrontation between the West and the Soviet Union because that's what the Nazis were doing. The Nazis were confronting and invading the Soviet Union. Um, so John Loftus, who I interviewed for the book, uh, was a Nazi hunter for Carter, President Carter in the Justice Department. And he came across a lot of really interesting information. I do believe that Nixon, as a young lawyer for the Navy at the time, coming out of World War II, found material that showed the Dulles brothers had played a treasonous, traitorous role during the war, World War II. And he used that information to basically blackmail the Dulles brothers. The Dulles brothers were behind Hit the, the huge financial support, the strange financial support that uh, Nixon enjoyed when he ran for Congress uh, as a young uh, person uh, right after the war. Uh, he ran against a New Deal Democrat, Jerry Voorhees, and he won. And that started his pol political career. I believe the Dulles machine became the Nixon machine. Uh, after World War II. And they did it for mutually uh, mutual reasons. They both advanced the interests of the Dulles faction as well as Nixon's career. Right, because they used Nixon. I mean, it's known that Nixon was visited by people from, uh, you know, Eastern banking circles, like uh, maybe Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, that they sort of groomed him to, to run against Voorhees but then that backstory of what he would have done in the Navy, because he was dealing with logistics in the Navy. He didn't serve like, you know, out no. shooting at people or anything. He was kind of a clerk, you know, and that must have been where he came across some of those, you know, things that would have. According to Loftus, I think he found those papers, Nixon, after the war or as the war uh, was winding down in a warehouse in, in northern Virginia. And these were very, uh, these uh, papers, secret papers, implicated the Dulles brothers, as I said, in treasonous activities during the war. Uh, we know that the Dulles law firm on Wall Street, which the largest law firm on Wall Street, uh, Sullivan and Cromwell, continued before and during and after the war to have German clients, Nazi clients. And I believe Dulles, Alan Dulles, as the top spy for the US, uh, and continental Europe in, in Switzerland was meeting with uh, the Nazis on a regular basis. They came across the border into Switzerland. And of course, he engineered uh, uh, a separate peace in Italy with Nazi forces against the expressed uh, will of the Roosevelt administration. So that alone was a traitorous activity. He was entering into negotiations with SS officials in Italy at the end of the war against- What the Carl, Carl Wolf story? Exactly. Carl Wolf was head of the SS in Italy and he uh, saved his life, Dell saved his life, sent commandos into Northern Italy to protect him from Italian partisans who wanted to kill him for war crimes uh, against uh, Italian partisans. So yes, Dulles uh, on many occasions crossed uh, uh, swords uh, or was that cross purposes with the uh, Roosevelt administration, which he ostensibly served. And he was basically uh, making a pact with the devil, with the Nazis. Right. I mean, this is uh, this we had we do that all over the place. And in, uh, in Japan, they 
rescue Yoshio Kodama, who was Yakuza, but then an admiral, and he looted all these places. He he basically created the ruling party with stolen platinum and diamonds, like 170 million. They created a slush fund, and that that fat, that basically got the LDP rolling, and that's been running that country ever since. So Japan is basically like a it's basically a CIA. The ruling party is like a CIA slash mafia asset. It's it's actually amazing what happened and with on the german side there's even there's it's even deeper than i mean what what you're saying is what is is crazy and it's true that it ever happened but they also peter dale scott is has a dossier on this for the uh the reichstag fire like in at nuremberg they said oh yeah the nazis set this they're like they set like fires in dozens of places it had to be it couldn't have possibly been this one guy uh, and then they had like sort of different confessions and so on from Nazi characters. But then a few years after the war, they they say like, uh, no, it was actually the it was the communist dude. And Peter says the reason for that is that a lot of the people that were implicated in that were rehab rehabilitated, quote unquote, and put in the new West German government. And so then they had to say like, oh, it wasn't the Nazis that set the Reichstag fire, which is and and that's still what like li like the the nerds at Jacobin they still like write about that like that's the good lefty uh professional lefty thing to do is to believe that the nazis didn't do that because that would have been a conspiracy and you can't they wrote you, that it's even wrong to accuse the nazis yeah there's an article where it's like the nazis exploited the reichstag fire and it's like no they didn't that you, you nerds or, or, they did they, the did they... Fire. <laughs> wow okay that's in the u.s the left is so nice to the right and to the state and even the nazis they're so kind. It really, they think their compassion will change the world. I think it's important, Bryce and Aaron, to understand this history uh, and to go into it and read books like mine and others that have been written about this because essentially the Nazis were not defeated. The Nazi ideology took control in this country and became the Cold War ideology. And Nazi officials, as you said, Aaron, continued to run the West German government after the war. And Nazi officials, uh, or pro-Nazi officials like Dulles, ran the anti-Soviet Cold War uh, in machinery in this country. So I believe that this influence is even felt today with the anti-Putin effort to revive the Cold War and actually uh, demonize Russia. Lord knows uh, there's enough problems with Russian society. They probably wouldn't allow, Putin wouldn't allow uh, us to have this podcast if we did, uh, if it became too popular. There are enough problems without exaggerating them, going to war with them. But uh, we should never engage with Russia militarily. They will prevail in Ukraine. They'll fight to the last soldier. That's what Russians do. That's what they did during World War II. It's insane to antagonize them and to keep encroaching on their territory, as we've done, uh, NATO's done, uh, you know, steadily since 1989, since the Berlin Wall fell. So, uh, and now, you know, the U.S. is engaged militarily, has been somewhere in the world, Gaza, Africa, Yemen, uh, the Ukraine, uh, Syria, you need the world uh, ever since JFK was killed. He was trying, last uh, the president who tried to establish a reign of peace and diplomacy and justice in this country. And we see what happened to him. The bad guys went, won, and they continue to win. And you keep talking about this uh, like extermin, exterminationist ideology. I mean, uh, to bring it back to like Reinhard Gellin, I mean, 
the reason that he was rehabilitated, it wasn't just that the, the West didn't care, is that they found his Nazism useful, is that Gellin understood this and he, you know, hid a bunch of intelligence all around uh, in different areas. And he was, I believe his position was head of intelligence yeah, he for Hitler of the East, Eastern Front. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. later he was the head of West German intelligence. Too. But then, yeah. <laughs> and so, so he understood this about the West and that they would have an eventual confrontation uh, with uh, the Soviet Union just because he understood the internal logics of Nazi society and how it, in a very large way, mirrored that of American society. And, uh, you know, that was on clear display after the war when they were using all these Nazi guys for, you know, everything under the sun. Uh, and we see that exterminationist ideology now. I mean, the, the fact that, uh, you know, Otto Skorzeny, a Nazi that was rehabilitated by the West, was working with the state of Israel. Uh, I mean, I think that underscores just how uh, how broad this, uh, as you say, exterminationist front is. I mean, they, we use those people in... Guatemala, we use those people in Argentina, Chile, like all over the world. And again, we see it today. Uh, you mentioned about Germany being, you know, basically run by the ex-Nazis. I mean, it's why today, if Germany was really thoroughly, truly denazified, well, they wouldn't be backing South Africa or uh, backing Israel in the uh, the genocide uh, uh, charges from South Africa. But that's what Germany is doing today. They're saying there is no genocide. And I guess we should know. I, it's insane. Uh, but that's the legacy of people like Dulles, of people like, uh, well, it's, it's this entire system, really. You, it's hard to pin it on one person. But it's more an internal logic of the way uh, the American Western system works. Uh, you, you're right, Bryce. I believe one of the great ironies of history is not just the U.S. was basically infiltrated by the Nazis after the war. Israel, the country that suffered, the Jews suffered the worst uh, at the hands of the Nazis. Six million exterminated by the Nazis uh, during the war. And yet Israel today under Netanyahu has the same exterminationist Nazi philosophy towards the Palestinians, who they're trying obviously to wipe out in Gaza right now. They kill women, they kill children. It's an exterminationist philosophy. And South Africa had the courage to accuse them of genocide in an international court. And I think that was uh, justice. That was uh, the right thing for South Africa to do. And they're getting lots of blowback, of course, from the US and Israel and so forth. But that was righteous uh, of South Africa to take that on. So that is what's going on in Israel today. It's a Nazi philosophy. The Nazi philosophy prevailed of all places in Israel and in the U.S. I would qualify that a little bit because I'm actually getting ready to, on uh, I think Sunday, deliver a, a talk about this. And it, it is exactly this. Fascism wasn't defeated in World War II. And I'll say it survives in two areas. The, the more pure version of like blood and soil exterminationism, that unfortunately is is zionism i mean lebensraum and the greater israel master race and the chosen people it's weird at the seat of amalek i mean this is like very very horrific stuff that like it, it's amazing it they have so much power that it usually doesn't go commented on although i think that they've actually changed that and they've sort of screwed themselves this way because now people are actually saying like you know what this is actually insane more people are saying that 
but the American version of it, it is a kind of fascism, except it's got different vibes. It's like, it's not goose stepping and like, we are the Fuhrer principle. It's like Wall Street lawyers. And if you have to kill somebody, generally you would like to have it be done covertly so you can say you didn't do it. Whereas the Nazis, I mean, they conspired too, like with the Reichstag fire and staging that, all those events to go into Poland. But generally they were more straightforward like yeah we're nazis the u.s is like oh we we defeated the fascists and we're democrats but like if they'll kill anyone who is in the way of like the empire the reich uh including the president so it, it does it is that that's where it does survive it's the idea that like the oligarchy must win and if threatened it can kill anyone who gets in its way that is what survives and that is what we're faced we're we're, we're faced with uh, today and it's it's gonna, they're gonna lose, but they're not losing because they've been defeated at home because democracy rose up and said, no, it's, they're losing the same way other empires lose. Yeah. Now there's another part of this that uh, I, I just wanna mention in passing because uh, it, it's fascinating to me, but Charlotte Dennett and uh, Gerard Colby, I, I was talking to them a while ago. I interviewed them for a, 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 to talk about their book on the Rockefellers. And they were working on a new book and they've, I don't know if they found a publisher for it. They were thinking maybe Skyhorse, but I don't know if that ever happened. But they were saying that part of what happened after World War II was that uh, Zionist interests found dirt on the Rockefellers and that they had, that they had basically collaborated more closely with the Nazis than, uh, than has been previously disclosed, even though we know Standard Oil and Sullivan and Cromwell, you know, uh, those sort of entities were, there was a lot going on there that the Rockefellers may have been more directly involved and that that was a way that they were kind of blackmailed uh, in a sense after World War II in some way. Uh, but I can't, I don't have any details about that. So that's- uh, I was about to say, that's a that's an interesting story. I mean, like, was it Z like Zionists in America or was it like the Mossad's Nazi hunters? They found links between, uh, you know, existing Nazis and the Rockefellers. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me given given the Rockefeller's role in, you know, the, the empire, but. I will ask Charlotte about this. I'll, I emailed her not that long ago to follow up on this, and then she hasn't emailed me back, but I, I want to know more about it. But a more, um, a more recent one where you see this like establishment, you know, schism with the Zionists and uh, even conservative people is in Bush. And I, I want to pull this up because this was from uh, the thing I did. The other day a presentation and it was the last episode of devil's chess club tour one of the last ones and this is from the times of israel and they're writing about how bush changed the u.s relationship and what they're saying is that bush they're pointing out that bush delayed israel loan guarantees until it like what 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 trump was suggesting that he do at one point in a meeting and then they said no you can't do that right withholding aid until they had to deal with the palestinians so bush actually did this he delayed israel loan guarantees until they halted settlements in the West Bank and entered into uh, peace talks. And uh, that this was a, they're saying he made clear the cost of an American president waging a political fight against the vast coalition of lobbying groups. And he talks about, they talk about the Jewish vote in this article, but I think that they really understate it because the power of the Israel lobby isn't so much the Jewish vote. It's like, that's actually not that huge of a thing. It is the amount, the influence that they have in the media and the campaign finance system and so on. I mean, so this is oh, this is wild because if if they do this to Bush, who is like Mister, I mean, this is not a a, a 
a liberal character. He's not Adlai Stevenson. He's like Mr. Darkness uh, in a sense. Like he's the guy that is, is, you should trace him through a whole lot of scandals and, you know, from the JFK assassination and his, his weird uh, appearance there in that document with J. Edgar Hoover. And then in the 70s, he's the CIA director, but like he was probably CIA all along. I mean, and running Bush's or running Reagan's foreign policy. And even he is like, he loses when he, he loses in his reelection bid. Uh, Larry Wilkerson says he thinks it was because of Israel. And like, I think that, that if you understand, try to understand what happened in the US after the Cold War and all these terrible foreign policy mistakes, they all are like, you know, they're dumb, but they're like what Israel wanted. Like the, the clean break thing that Richard, uh, not Richard Wolf. Pearl. Richard Pearl. I don't want to call him Richard Wolf. I, I get those guys mixed up. Richard Pearl. Thank you. Uh, who later went on to work for the for W. I mean, it's all like uh, this neoconservatism and Zionism intertwined. Some of them dual citizens. And uh, it, it's it, it's it seems like this is a, a big part of the story of what happened to the U.S. at the end of the Cold War is that like neoconservatism boosted by hardline Zionism has guided us into debacle after debacle. It, it, it honestly seems that uh, it reflects the changes going on in Israel at the time as well. Because uh, from that Times of Israel article, I mean, the Bush administration pushed Israel into Madrid, which was, you know, key in the Oslo process after the first intifada, which, you know, that was when a major wing of Israel, Israeli society uh, with people like, uh, oh God, I'm forgetting the name, uh, Rabin. Uh, yeah, the one that was killed. Yeah, yeah, the one that was killed. Uh, but uh, he w represented a, a sector in Israeli society. And it wasn't even, like, the Oslo wasn't a peace settlement. Like, it wasn't a, a real, like, you know, we're going to give Palestinians equality. We're going to, you know, uh, end the occupation. What Oslo was was uh, really the apartheid option where they would uh, enter into some sort of interim agreement and they would create this collaborationist force uh, in the form of the PA. It's what we ended up with uh, because of this brief moment in history. But uh, what that did was invigorate the uh, Israeli right. And then you get Netanyahu a few years later. And then that ushered in this, uh, this imperium of uh, hardline Zionism. But even the soft Zionism was an extreme oppressive, uh, like, like, like the labor, the labor party, in Israel, I mean, they—they're just as—they're—I mean—they're very—they're just as fascist as the hard right in Israel. It's really just a matter of flavor. It's like, are we going to put the Palestinians in a cage forever, or are we going to like shoot them while they're in the cage? Uh, that seems to be the difference. But that split—it seemed to occur in—it seems that Bush was aligned with that more moderate form of Zionism. Bush one was aligned with that more moderate form of Zionism. Uh, but was, by the uh, time they were, they were pushing for a two-state solution, I think yeah. was, and it was supposed the negotiations were supposed to continue past Oslo. Yeah, but the uh, but the negotiations the for e even even if Oslo had uh, reached its intended uh, conclusion, I, I don't even Israelis acknowledge that the the plan was never like a full equal Palestinian state that can have a military and control its own borders. It would still be a, a rump state, a subordinate state, uh, but it would be a state on paper, which is far more than the Palestinians have now. Uh, but the fact that that process was, you know, undercut, it gave us this permanent state of apartheid where they just divide the country into bantistans, expand the settlements to the point where they can create the facts on the ground. Uh, 
that means the Palestinians will never have their own state. And that's yeah. what they did. Uh, but yeah, the, the Bush too uh, seemed to be aligned with that, with that uh, more hardline Zionism uh, that blow up the world, blow up Iran, or not, not blow up Iran, but like use Iran. He saw what happened to his dad. He saw that his dad stood up to those people. I mean, I heard, I heard Larry Wilkerson and Ray McGovern also say at times like, yeah, George H.W. Bush was more sensible and had a better approach to foreign policy and, you know, and stood up to the neocons some. And I always thought like, well, yeah, that's interesting, but I, he's so sinister. I can't really imagine that. But now you, what? when you see, when you see that what Israel is doing is, is bad for the United States, then you actually think like, well, he would do that because on top of, at the end of the day, people like Alan Dulles and people like George H.W. Bush are tactical and pragmatic totally immoral but but are sensible because they they want to try to game things out and be have things work out in a, in the real world in the way that is advantageous to them what israel and the neocons have done is not is something different i, I guess the, the big crazy. point i was getting at was that it seems that much like that there are multiple americas when we talk about the american state and its activities there are also multiple israels and that's reflected in its policy towards the united states uh, like which which wing of that you know uh, hardline versus labor Zionism split uh, is it has the most influence over the Israel lobby in the Amer in America? Yeah. That is the core question, and it seems that the Israel lobby uh, uh, initially, like the '80s, the Reagan Bush Israel lobby, underwent the same change that uh, that Israel did uh, towards the '90s. David, you were writing about that in Salon in, in the 90s and in the 2000s. So what was how, what are your recollections about the way that you that you and your writers perceived the influence of Israel over political events? In that? Well, I think if you take the historical perspective all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt State, State Department was anti-Semitic, was very waspy, was against Jewish immigration to this country uh, from Germany. As, not, as Hitler rose to power. And a lot of those Jews were caught by the Holocaust and uh, became victims of the Holocaust because this country wouldn't take in Jewish refugees. And that was largely because uh, uh, people like the Dulles Brothers and others were anti-Semitic and didn't want those Jewish refugees in this country. The Dulles Brothers, their sister married a Jew, David Blondheim. And he ended up killing himself. And I think the older brothers then covered that up and covered him up, wrote him out of history. And Eleanor, who was their sister, Eleanor and Dallas, was very, very upset by this, by the way that her Jewish husband, her late Jewish husband, was uh, expunged by her older brothers. So the State Department has a deplorable anti-Semitic history. But I think what happened then, as Israel was founded after the war, was uh, we increasingly saw Israel as our cat's paw, and uh, that we could use Israel for our imperial uh, designs. And Israel had its own agenda, and they infiltrated through the Israel lobby this country's politics over the last 50, 60 years. I think to the great detriment of the of democracy in this country, because we don't know what their agenda is, and as you say, it uh, triumphed during the George H. Uh, w. Bush period, or rather George the Second Bush period, when the neocons essentially kidnapped 
his foreign policy. We went to war with Iraq. We went to war in Syria. We tried to remake the Middle East tragically, uh, disastrously, because the neocon, which is essentially uh, Israel, pro-Israel uh, agenda, uh, was to make those countries unthreatening to Israel, Iran, Iraq, Syria. And that's what happened with PNAC and with the neocon influence in this country, essentially the Israel lobby. It, when Dave Chappelle and Gore Vidal and others periodically say uh, the, the Jewish lobby, the Israel lobby has too much power in this country, and it's an often irresponsible power. It's not, uh, you know, you can't call it without being accused of being anti-Semitism. They're right, essentially. Uh, th this now lobby has become so powerful, Netanyahu, and he's only there, by the way, because he's aligned with extremist religious fanatics. That's who are the basis of his power at this point. He was on the verge of losing power because people in the streets, the Israelis themselves were protesting his authoritarian government until the war with Hamas uh, conveniently broke out. By the way, it's not a war. The US media, the New York Times keeps calling it a war. It's a massacre. It's yeah. a slaughter. That's what's happening to Like, do you even know the last time an Israeli civilian was killed? Exactly. It's a like, massacre. I don't even know that Hamas killed any of them. And they're, and they're massacring those people with our money, with our weapons. The U.S. applies them. They could, Biden could cut them off tomorrow. So this hand wringing, oh, please don't drop bombs on the, on the people. Else. Oh, please don't kill so many. It's bullshit. Blinken and Biden could stop this war tomorrow if they wanted to. So, uh, you know, I think Netanyahu, unfortunately, is carrying out the designs maybe too aggressively, too violently for our taste, for the world's uh, taste. But he's essentially carrying out U.S. policy when he kills Palestinians uh, in Gaza. So uh, it's just disgusting. As U.S. citizen, I'm appalled by this. And I do think the Israel lobby has become way too influential in this country. It's, it, it, it's uh, a taboo. You can't investigate it. If it were some other country, we'd be all over it as journalists. The New York Times, the Washington Post would do investigative series on the influence, the noxious influence of China, of Russia, of whatever. But because Israel is, uh, you know, protected. Uh, by the media. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, was I was writing about this today just on like social media. It is a totalitarian in the in the political science sense to the extent that that term is not just a, you know, insult. Uh, it, it meaning that every aspect of civil society is under the sway of this. And what I mean is that in the academy, you can be screwed by talking about Israel in the political system. And look what happened to the media. The woman who was head of Harvard, for God's sake. Look what happened to Jimmy Carter when she wasn't he even anti-Israel. She wasn't even anti-Israel. No, she was very, very, I think, uh, moderate in her statement. Uh, yeah. Look what happened to Jimmy Carter when he used the apartheid word. That is what uh, is happening to Palestinians. It's apartheid. It's worse uh, yeah. now. Now it's just. It's a yeah, it's even even at my university, they uh, banned a Palestinian artist from coming because 
Well, initially they said they were had security concerns, but then someone else told a, a journalist that they had concerns about her social media posts. Uh, yeah. And this is like, this comes right after they just suspended our, our faculty advisor uh, for the Palestine Solidarity Group uh, because he filled out a room wrong or uh, filled out a form for a room wrong uh, for a speaker, a pro-Palestinian speaker. Like yeah. it, it, it's, it is deeply pervasive and pernicious in our society. It's a terror. It's terrorism is what it is. I mean, they're actually just trying. It's not that that person matters that much. They just want to literally terrorize people to so that they don't use their free speech rights to point out the absurdity. You want to cancel people. And that's what they're doing. They're canceling people. Whoever speaks out against the uh, massacre in Gaza. Uh, it's Zionism and cancel culture. <laughs> That's the original cancel culture. It really is. And it's yes. funny that Bar these frauds like Barry Weiss, you know, the that uh, fanatical Zionist is like talking about, oh, cancel. But like, she's a lunatic. Yeah, right. Did, I mean, did, wait, a joke, but side note: Does she still write for the Washington Post? No, I think she. I don't. I think she's on Substack or something like that. Okay. But okay. yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, it takes podcasts like this. It takes a few people to speak out. Uh, but there is, I think, uh, something to be really deeply investigated. The power of the Israel lobby, the power of the presence. When, when Netanyahu thumbs his nose at Blinken and Biden and says, we're going to do whatever the fuck we want. And uh, thank you for your input. Go the hell away. I mean, it's ridiculous. Who's calling the shots now? Netanyahu or Biden. Yeah. I mean, they just made him look like a fool, like multiple times, look like an absolute fool, uh, like uh, the like the Al-Shifa stuff. Uh, they, the U.S. intelligence to this day maintains that Hamas had a command node under Al-Shifa, even though, uh, you know, all the human rights organizations that matter uh, were like, there's no evidence of this. Even the, the 40 beheaded babies, they had Biden go out and say that he saw pictures of this never before what I thought I'd see something like that. like and then he ended up looking like a total fool so he's out there clowning himself uh for what for so Israel can continue its genocide like that's that's a level of power you can't like the that you that doesn't just happen <laughs> yeah I mean I, I'll say this I when things were when it was clear what where Ukraine was going I was saying repeatedly Bryce you probably heard me say this like there's no way that this election in 2024 is going to be is going to happen with the backdrop being just everything going on as it was and with Ukraine you know this total disaster that everybody's focused on I, was, I knew some crazy shit was going to happen and here, then, it, and then it came. I mean, I said this over and over again. I was like, something crazy is going to happen before now because there's, if they can't reverse this in Ukraine, there's got to be something. And I, I don't know how that factors in, but like, I, I think in some sick way, the the American deep state is like prefers them people to be arguing about Israel. Uh, rather than if this wasn't going on and we're just like, oh, my God, the average age of the Ukrainian military is what, 48 years old now? And they've lost how many hundreds of thousands? Like, instead, it's almost it's a taken that off the radar. I don't know. I have no idea the mechanism that it works. I'm not making any grand theory that we try to explain everything. But this is a, is a horrific spectacle. And it is related to the terrible state of the U.S. empire in some way. And the precarious position that it's in, um, 
going forward. And I don't think Biden's going to be there in, in November running. Well, well let's talk, uh, uh, Aaron, let's pivot in the time that's left yes. to the uh, disaster, the train wreck that is uh, the 2024 presidential race. I think we're witnessing uh, uh, really a tragic uh, implosion of American politics this year. If Bobby Kennedy stays in the race and is able to get on the ballot, he has the biggest favorable rating of the three candidates, of any candidate right now, according to the latest polls. Biden is, uh, as you said, a dead man walking. Trump is sounding more and more like authoritarian blowhard every day. And he's way ahead in the polls, defeating Biden. The DNC is so stupid, the Democratic Party establishment, that they're putting up an old, doddering, weak candidate who can't beat Trump. And, you know, they've been told this again and again. Will they replace him? Maybe they can legally after the uh, primary season. They'll put someone else up there. But the problem is the Democratic Party, uh, Democratic Party bent strength is so weak now. Who the hell are they going to put up? I watched the debate between Gavin Newsom, who I know quite well. He was my mayor here in San Francisco for eight years before he became governor. And I've interviewed Gavin. He's interviewed me about my book, Season of Witch, about the history of San Francisco. Uh, so I know him. He was not good with DeSantis. He was overprepared. He was a know-it-all. He did not come across very well, like a politician you want to get behind the vote. And he supported Biden all the way. Biden could do no wrong. He's a Biden uh, body double. That's not the right position to take. The right position at this point is to do what Bobby Kennedy did in 1968, have the courage to speak out against the sitting president, to speak out against the powers that run his own party. They didn't do that. They decided to double down with Biden and keep this old guy in for another four years. They won't get it. Newsom might pose as the more moderate voice on Israel and then leave Bobby, the, the deranged Zionist out there. I, think I, I don't think so, Aaron. I think he he's, he's a captive of the Israel lobby like all politicians are. They, are you yeah, kidding? I, I he's agree. From California. He's from Los Angeles, Hollywood. I mean, that's the center, one of the centers of the Israel yeah. lobby. No, I mean, Gavin you're right. Most no, likely that's right. However, I think there's the possibility of him even just reverting to the normal line of like, oh, we should have a peace process and a two-state went to, He went to Israel, Gavin, right after the war broke out there. So, yeah. no, he's uh, so going to be Kobe, yeah. always. Uh, so uh, that's an alternative. I mean, sadly, Bobby yeah, but, Jr. But not, decided to double down also on Israel uh, during the, you know, what the, uh, whatever you call it, the massacre of the Palestinians. <laughs> It's a pog, uh, like a aerial pogrom. I don't even know what you call it, but yeah, I I don't think that Bobby. A lot of people are really angry at Bobby, like they're personally angry with him for his Israel business, and I find it you know horrific. But I will say that like for anybody who's really pissed at him for it, I don't think he can win with this position. I think that's why Biden is tanking, and it's not Bobby's gain. Bobby can't win with it, and if Bobby sticks with this position to the end, it's the big question is going to be like, what in the hell was compelling him? to basically uh, just sacrifice, self-immolate his chances uh, on this Zionist altar. I mean, I it's really, this, well, is, this is the big question. That. 
We've talked a lot about why Bobby is supposed to die on this hill. I do think that he would get a 10% bump. The youth vote would go for him overnight if he were to speak out a ceasefire and defend the Palestinians. But he's chosen to double down with Israel. And I don't understand it. I know I've known Bobby uh, for some time and I can't understand it. Uh, I've written to him personally and it doesn't seem to have any impact at all. Uh, people around him or close to him want him to speak out about this, but whenever he does, uh, like with first of all, it's an embarrassment. So I, I don't know. I can't uh, say what his motive is. Well, I, we will see what we will see, but I do think that it looks bad for both Zionism and the U.S. empire and that the rest of the world is, uh, is, is rising up here in a way that they have never been able to. And it really goes back to concerns that were when the U.S. was rational. You had Eisenhower intervening in the Suez Canal the way that he did a uh, Suez crisis. Something went terribly wrong. And there, and it's gonna. It could end up destroying U.S. hegemony, which would have collapsed eventually because you can't run the world forever. But also, it's that imperils the Zionist project at all. Like they need the U.S. to be the alpha dog, and they're destroying that too. This is well. Let's get He's the one candidate, the major candidate, who is willing to talk about the military-industrial complex, to talk about the military overreach of the U.S. empire. Uh, of Ukraine, and he's been a critic of all the things he should be a critic of. He's the one person who talks honestly about all of that. But Israel and, and Gaza are blind spots for him. He can't seem to integrate those into the rest of his very compelling, I believe, philosophy about a post-Pax America. That's what we're looking at. Will it be violent or will this transition be peaceful? And right now looks really, really ugly, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, take Bill Ackman, okay? Bill Ackman was pro-Ukraine war. He's back Bobby Kennedy. He's a quite despicable figure. I mean, this guy, if if America gave, a, if Time Magazine gave like asshole of the year award and let the public vote on it, Bill Ackman would have a good shot at that. And he, um, so he's back. His wife is a plagiarist, right? His wife is a plagiarist, but that's like that's so far down the list. It's she's got other issues too, I believe. But what I'm what I'm getting at is that if what Bobby's saying about the empire and winding it down, if he were able to do that and cut the budget in half and make the U.S. no longer the policeman of the world, and not have all these military bases, that seems that it would be not conducive to Israel doing what it has done, and that. Bill Ackman should be able to game that out. So, I mean, you wonder if these guys are backing Bobby because they think somehow it's going to help to get Trump to win or something. I mean, I don't even I don't understand his where he gets his support from these guys when the rest of his program, even though he's not even though he's saying he's pro-Israel, the rest of his program would basically spell the end of Zionism. And so really, what in the hell is going on with this? Yeah, it's really un head scratching. I don't know either what is going on with him. All I can say is, and as I've said to you before, his uncle JFK ran as a cold warrior against Nixon in 1960. He out-cold warriored Nixon on Cuba and the Missile Gap and a number of issues like that. And then when he became president, he became a man of peace. I hope Bobby is the same way in Israel too. I hope now 
he's running as a militarist, but he'll run as a man of he'll rule and govern as a man of peace if he makes it to the White House. That's a big if. That is definitely a big if, especially uh, as things are. But things it's gonna that it's gonna be a crazy uh, ten months until we get to that point. Um, David Talbot, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for tuning in. Please visit fordietrying.com and buy the prologue now on Amazon. Keep your eye out for chapter one, which should be dropping any day now. Please do subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon for first access to all Devil's Chess Club episodes and for all new and past episodes of the American Exception podcast. You can also subscribe to the American Exception YouTube channel. We're always talking about how crazy it is to live in this historically cataclysmic time. There's so much we can talk about, but I just want to close by stating again the sheer insanity and hubris of the U.S. and Israel deploying ISIS again as though the whole world can't see what's behind this. I think more and more people realize that ISIS is just the latest batch of McJihad pawns that the empire has murderously deployed on the devil's chessboard.